Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today's episode is brought to you by Samsung Canada and its mobile solutions offerings, curated specifically for entrepreneurs and small business owners. From Samsung POS, a new payment acceptance solution, to Dex, a tool that allows you to create a desktop experience straight from your smartphone. Samsung Canada is committed to delivering innovative, productive, and efficient mobile solutions that make managing your small business easier. To learn more about Samsung's latest innovations in entrepreneurial solutions, please visit samsung.com. Despite all the fears of a recession, Canada's economy is doing, well, pretty good, actually, based on recent government data. But how should we evaluate Canada's economic performance this year as we start looking ahead to 2020? I'm Emily Jackson, and you're listening to Down to Business. This week, we're joined by Kevin Carmichael, the Financial Post's very own national business columnist and resident expert on the Canadian economy. He joins us from Montreal to break down some of the biggest economic issues of 2019, from steady interest rates and improving housing markets to global trade wars and prolonged economic struggle in Alberta. If we're having a year in review conversation, I think the thing that stands out most for Canada this year is our interest rates. The bank kept them pretty steady while countries around the world cut rates even lower. What does this say about the Canadian economy relative to our peers? It says two things. One, it says something about where we were relative to our peers sort of going into uh, into this year. And that is not quite at the same pace as uh, economies like the U.S. were growing. So um, I, I guess this gets back to ultimately the the oil crash of or the oil price crash of 2014, 2015, which forced the Bank of Canada to cut rates a couple of times, sort of back down to emergency levels just at the moment where they were trying to, uh, to get them back up. The Federal Reserve in the U.S., others sort of kept going on that track, track kept going to, uh, to a higher um, level of interest rates. So I guess that ultimately left Canada with some catching up to do. Can- the, the Bank of Canada did catch up to the Fed. And what in fact you saw was the Fed and other central banks coming back to where the, the Bank of Canada was. So there there's that element. And then the other is those interest rate cuts that the Bank of Canada made uh, after the oil price crash. Uh, notwithstanding Alberta, which is, a, which is a special case, things remain tough there. But through most of the rest of the economy, you saw hiring really take off. And uh, there was just no indication, no data telling the Bank of Canada that it needed to uh, to cut rates like the rest of the, uh, or most of the rest that the world was doing. So the rates stay low. One of the things we've seen with these, you know, lower rates, but no, not cutting further, but still at historically fairly low levels is that the housing market has bounced back up. You know, efforts to keep prices down were implemented, whether that was the foreign buyers tax, uh, stricter mortgage lending rules for first time home buyers. And yet we've seen the housing market in the biggest cities in Toronto and Vancouver kind of get a little bit more juice in it. I'm wondering why you think that happened. For sure. So if we think back 12 months ago, roughly, um, as you as you indicated, Emily, there was certainly some some trepidation that uh, that all these regulations that uh, were put in place might have gone too far. That they were squeezing the market too much. Prices seemed to go off a cliff in Toronto and uh, in Vancouver, some other places. But then they came around, and so what that 
tells us is that probably the, that decline, that, that sharp decline we saw at the start of the year was an indication of how much speculation was going on in, in, in some of these markets. And that speculation was chased away by the tighter uh, lending rules, the taxes that were put in place. And then so the market settled off a bit mid-year, which is about the time when the U.S. Federal Reserve and other central banks started cutting uh, interest rates. That brought mortgage rates down in Canada as well. And uh, so just at a moment where um, where it looked like things were getting pretty rough, you had the real estate lobby out saying that these lending restrictions needed to be reversed, um, all that kind of thing. You saw a real upswing. And that was important. I mean, basically what happened was it showed like given that uh, all the strength that we're seeing in hiring, all the strength that we're seeing in most parts of the Canadian economy sort of ensured that there was still a decent amount of demand in place. Then those lower mortgage rates mid-year just gave the push that really was, was probably more than was needed, frankly. I mean, the, the hiring numbers were were strong, lots of jobs being created, wages were rising. So um, it was just a matter of uh, that adjustment that occurred at the start of the year, sort of working its way through the system. And as soon as those lower mortgage rates uh, hit, the housing markets in these cities took off again. Just crazy prices we're seeing again but it's interesting that it seems to be in line with these hiring numbers, which brings me to my next question. You know, we've been talking a lot this year about the signs of a recession coming. We've been concerned about business investment, not only in Canada, but around the world. Every day there's kind of that tension that, okay, this has been trekking along for a long time. The recession timing is kind of right. And yet the Bank of Canada has most recently seen some again, some strength in the Canadian economy. How do you think about those relative stories together? You know, how do you square that narrative of the recession is coming versus Canada's actually trekking along quite nicely? Yeah, it's a, it's a puzzle for all of us who pay particular attention to uh, to these sorts of questions, and a particular puzzle for the Bank of Canada, I guess, going into the um, into the end of the year and uh, setting itself up for its next policy decision in January. I mean, I think everybody thought they sort of had the, the narrative in place that you know the trade wars and whatnot might finally start to create some serious headwinds for Canada. That the strong hiring numbers couldn't possibly carry on in the, in the face of those sort of headwinds given how dependent the, the Canadian economy is on trade. And uh, the Bank of Canada was pretty sure that that was going to show up in business investment. And those numbers, we thought, were were, were pretty weak. And uh, so that was a telltale sign that the economy just didn't have the sort of juice that, uh, that you'd like to see. And then lo and behold, the third quarter numbers come out. And instead of a decline uh, in business investment, which the Bank of Canada was pretty certain was going to come, we saw a big increase, something like to something to the effect of 9% or an annual growth rate of 9% over the third quarter which uh, was just was pretty strong, especially when you were expecting uh, a decline. Yeah, no kidding. That's definitely more than just a slight bump. Yeah, there's definitely something to pay attention to. And so there were there were revisions sort of going back uh, many, many quarters. And we there was in, at the start of the year, there was a growth rate of like 18%. And yes, there was a, there was a decline in, uh, in the second quarter. But, you know, overall, investment is much stronger than, than everybody thought. So the Bank of Canada has to go back and have a look just to figure out what is going on here, whether there's some quirks in the data or whether there's far more strength here than we thought. And that's really a key question going into 
2020, because that could mean two things. I mean, so if the economy is stronger than we thought, then maybe there's going to be some some pressure on the Bank of Canada to raise interest rates, which certainly nobody was really thinking was likely, you know, a few weeks ago for sure. But then the other thing that's going on is maybe we're not as unproductive as we thought. Maybe the economy has been building up more capacity to grow faster without stoking inflation, which of course is what the Bank of Canada cares most about. So certainly a, a serious question or an important question to be paying attention to going into 2020. I want to talk about both those things, both the potential pressure to raise the rates and the productivity issues. Let's talk about the pressure to raise the rates, though. Can the bank really do that? I know we're about to get a new Bank of Canada governor coming up next year, but the low interest rates environment have encouraged so much borrowing. Canadian households are carrying a lot of debt relative to our peers in other countries. A raise of the rates could really screw a lot of people. Is that a path? that you think the bank can realistically pursue? Uh, for sure, the the next governor uh, is going to have to pay particular attention to household debt. He or she may need to be more versed in debt dynamics than hiring and, uh, and the usual sorts of things that drive inflation. You've seen the Bank of Canada say pretty explicitly over the past number of months that you know even it gave some thought to to cutting interest rates like the rest of the central banks and determined ultimately that the risk just wasn't worth it because debt levels are so high that a, an interest rate cut at this time just would put more upward pressure on that debt, which is really, you know, which is asking for trouble that, you know, when the, the next sort of recession comes around, the Canadian economy would be very vulnerable. The fact that it has all that debt sitting there, you know, waiting to just basically jam all sorts of uh, households and businesses. Uh, the moment that hiring uh, stops, the, you know, the hiring and the wages increases that have been allowing people to, to deal with that debt to this point. So very important question. The, the issue around whether the Bank of Canada can raise rates going forward. I mean, it will if the if the numbers make a convincing case that inflation is a is a real problem, but it's super sensitive to how how high it can go. So maybe in years past, you'd anticipate a march higher given uh, the backdrop, giving higher wages, strong uh, employment growth. But I wouldn't anticipate that now just because we've, we're coming through a long stretch, 10 years where the people have gotten used to interest rates at a very low level. That makes households very sensitive to changes in interest rates. So the Bank of Canada in turn has to be extremely sensitive on how fast it goes forward. It might try to nudge interest rates up maybe a quarter point at a time and then just wait to make sure that it hasn't gone too far because it's going to be a lot easier to uh, to cool off the economy uh, in the years ahead than it has been in the past. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, you think about interest rates rising and all the people, especially in the major centers who have borrowed an obscene amount of money to buy a 600 square foot condo or something along those lines. Yeah, exactly. But then on the other hand, as you said, the signals are starting to mount that the economy could could potentially, I mean, a good news story if productivity is increasing, right? So when it comes to productivity, how do you evaluate the year that we've had given these sort of ups and downs in business investment? And why is business investment such an important factor to look at when you're evaluating the state of our economy? I, I evaluate the productivity numbers, frankly, with with a grain of salt. And the reason is, I'm not convinced, and and, and it's not just me. Uh, it's the, the the Bank of Canada itself, uh, the Governor Stephen Polos, isn't totally convinced that the numbers that we're what we're seeing are giving us a true picture of what's going on with productivity and business investment in Canada. And that, of course, Emily, is because of the shift to um, to a digital economy that we've been writing so much about in the Post over the last couple of years, and everybody can sort of see and 
and, and feel for themselves. So it's not uh, clear to me that uh, if you're moving to an intangible economy, one sort of driven by software applications and that sort of thing, is going to register the same way that uh, a tangible economy did in the numbers. So, for example, it costs a lot less to rent space on the cloud than it does to rent an office or build an office building or whatever. But both things are productivity enhancing in the same way. And, and in fact, renting space on the cloud might even be more productivity enhancing. But that kind of thing doesn't really show up in the numbers yet. Governor Polos himself wrote a paper on this, released it in November. And he showed in that study that he, he went back to the to mid-90s when he had a similar sort of data-driven, uh, innovation-driven productivity boom. And he showed that at that time, it took the forecasters like five years to realize uh, what was happening and to adjust the, their methodologies and whatnot to reflect what was really going on, the, on in the economy. So he thinks that something like that might be happening now around uh, artificial intelligence and this, uh, this a digital economy that we've been talking about. I'm persuaded that that could be happening, but uh, of course, you know, you can't be entirely sure. So probably, you know, the numbers that we do have suggest that productivity isn't what it should be, but there is reason to think that uh, there might be lots of things happening that we just don't see. From talking about the digital economy that we're having challenges measuring, I want to go back a bit to the traditional economy that Canada has based itself on. A lot of that is involving trade, involving agriculture, involving exports. That has been a challenging story this year amidst the global trade wars, particularly a challenging relationship with China. After the year we've had with NAFTA, with China, where do you think Canada stands in the fray between this global trade war between the U.S. and China? I look at 2018 as the year that Canadian exporters realized that uh, they couldn't rely on the U.S. Uh, anymore. I think this year, 2019, was the year Canadian exporters realized that diversification away from the U.S. wasn't going to be as simple as shifting sales to the next big uh, importer out there, which of course is China. So I think what we've learned is that um, we've learned what was always the case, that trading is very hard, uh, that politics always can screw things up and make it difficult. And so from Ottawa through to small businesses, I think there is now a real effort to take trade seriously, but realize that, you know, there's not going to be any sort of great windfall gain from either a, a trade agreement or a big contract with China or setting up an office in Dallas or sort of these things that we thought were sort of a relatively easy way to uh, gain market share in a hurry. I'll sort of look at it like Moneyball, where the way to get ahead of trade or the only way Canada can really get ahead in trade uh, going forward is to try to get on base. Lots of singles, doubles, walks, and just sort of keep advancing people you know, around the diamond until you, you put up some runs and don't rely on the home run like we, we sort of have for, for so long. It was, it's just not there to be had anymore. The politics have really made a mess of things. So Canada's advantage is it has a good number of trade agreements in place. Its weakness is that it hasn't really taken advantage of those trade agreements. So the trade story for Canada going forward is figuring out how to make those trade agreements work, whether that's taking smaller companies by the hand and, and walking them you know, around Europe or to places in Asia or, or whatever it is. Um, that's going to be the challenge for Canada when it comes to trade over the next couple of years, at least. 
just figuring out how to get on first base, it seems, after we essentially became used to relying on that home run of being the next door neighbor to the largest trading nation in the world. When it comes to diversification, it's not just a trade story. That's been a big story in Alberta this year as well. There has been a prolonged downturn since the energy prices fell drastically in 2015. It has been very challenging to get people back to work. Alberta's economy is still really struggling despite the positive signs we've seen elsewhere across Canada. How do you think Alberta is faring in its attempts to diversify and its attempts to get people back to work? Right. That's a hard question. It's a hard question because I'm not there, you're not there. So many of us who look at these things don't spend serious time on the ground. So I approach that question with a certain amount of trepidation. But I don't mind sharing what I've observed. And what I've observed is that uh, there certainly are things happening. There are some interesting companies popping up in uh, in Alberta, in, in Edmonton, and uh, in Calgary that show that there certainly is tons of potential there to, to move away from oil and gas. But I what I also observe is that the conditions aren't quite in place to allow that to happen the way it's happened in other places. It's amazing to say, given that, you know, that we've come to see Alberta as sort of like the free enterprise uh, heart of Canada, but it's very far behind Toronto, uh, Montreal, Waterloo, Ottawa, when it comes to the shift to the, the digital economy that we've been talking about. The level of startup activity just isn't there in in Edmonton and, and Calgary, like it is in the East, and not just the East, but Vancouver um, as well. So something has to happen. What's happened in all these other places is some sort of catalyst comes into play to bring all the ingredients together to create one of these tech in- ecosystems. Catalyst being some sort of government incentive. Well, ultimately, yeah. And I think even if you go through Alberta's history with oil and gas, I just don't see this talked about all that often. It's just people, it's like a narrative has, has, has come up around oil and gas being something that sort of like happened spontaneously through the hard work of, of Albertans. Hard work of Albertans certainly was part of it, but so was a tremendous amount of public investment that went into uh, figuring out how to extract that resource in a way that uh, you know could be sold profitably. Private capital didn't do that. Public capital did that. They realized that in Quebec. They realized that in Ontario. I mean, it's public capital that has sort of brought along the spark for these tech ecosystems to take off. And that is what's missing in Alberta at, at this moment. I mean, it's, it's not that there's no public support there, but there's not public support on the level that's necessarily going to allow those entrepreneurs to uh, to take off. And then, you know, we saw in the last Alberta budget, there were a number of these sorts of programs in place that were the same sorts of incentives that other governments had put in place and that had demonstrable effects on uh, on encouraging startup activity and hiring and all that sort of thing in other places that so they 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 worked but Alberta took them off the table you know they scrapped them and replaced them with a pledge to um, to cut corporate taxes. That's fine, except lower corporate tax rates help existing companies. They help existing companies that are profitable, that have a track record, that sort of thing. They don't help emerging companies because these companies aren't necessarily profitable yet. So they don't have any, they, they get no gain from lower tax rates at this stage in their development, but they do get a lot of help through subsidies for hiring and that sort of thing. And um, you know, those are sorts of programs that Ontario and Quebec have used. Montreal and Toronto are now two of the hottest tech markets uh, in North America, not just Canada, but North America. And, you know, Edmonton and Calgary sadly continue to be left behind. 
is certainly something to think about when Alberta is trying to answer that question of how do we get people back to work and how do we diversify the economy there? One more thing I want to talk to you about before we wrap up is climate risks. This has been a conversation that has taken center stage in 2019. It was a year where some major investors started really evaluating climate risks as part of where they're spending their money and pulling out of some places like Alberta, where they deem it too politically risky. I'm wondering if you can give us some examples of this and just how this has affected Canada this year and the path forward. Again, it's this one of these moments where I don't think there's any point of denying that risks that were being discussed for years are were actually, you know, real. They weren't the the imaginings of the chattering class or the global elite or whatever that, you know, this stuff actually happening. So we I mean we first talk started talking about the possibility that global capital could start repricing carbon based assets back in 2015, at least. I mean, 2015 is sort of when it uh, entered the, the mainstream discussion. I don't think we in Canada totally accepted what that meant. And I think this year we started to see what that meant, right? We, uh, so over the last, uh, certainly this year, I guess probably started uh, even um, a bit earlier than that. We saw lots of the international capital leaving Alberta. We saw HSBC, for as an example, the you know the global bank saying it no longer wanted anything to do with the oil sands. And then we saw even uh, toward the end of the year the the Swedish central bank getting rid of its Alberta its Alberta bonds because it didn't feel that Alberta was taking seriously enough climate change. So I mean, I guess my observation would be that I, I found it curious that a, a government like Alberta's, you know, very you know, free market to its core, it professes to be free market to its core, reacts in, in such a curious way to examples of, uh, of capitalists determining a price and, got, and letting that price guide their behavior. And of course, that price is what they see uh, or where they see these assets or what they see these assets being worth five or 10 years from now. So they're, 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 they're getting out. And part of that, of course, you mentioned the politics of it. And, and, and politics is important because um, a lot of this is being driven by the, you know, the ESG investment movement, which is real. There's serious amounts of money. And that's the environment, social, and governance. Uh, yes. Money that isn't keen on, on, on assets that are probably uh, contributing to, to climate change. Anyway, all kinds of capital lining up be, behind that sort of that approach to investing. And to, to, to recapture that, it simply requires governments to show that they are serious about lowering their emissions. The, the Alberta government's fight against the carbon tax sends a clear message to the rest of the world that it isn't serious about reducing emissions because there's a strong global consensus around the idea that a carbon tax will be a necessary piece to um, to reducing emissions down the road. And so to have a an important sub-sovereign government in Canada saying, no way, we're fighting carbon taxes until the very end. I mean, that's one that, that does affect you know how Canada is viewed globally, despite what the prime minister wants to do around climate change and what the federal approach to climate change is. So those investment funds, those banks that are um, thinking about these issues, they, they, they can't put any money in Alberta until they see a, a change in policy. Certainly something that people started putting their money where their mouths were in 2019. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Emily. Thanks. 
That was Kevin Carmichael, national business columnist at the Financial Post. Thank you to all of you for listening to Down to Business. We'd love to get to know you better. You can help by filling out a 30-second online survey at survey.libsyn.com slash down to business. Again, that's survey.libsyn.com slash down to business. A big thank you as well to the Down to Business team. Music and production by Bryce Hall. Editing by Yudula Hussain and Nicole McAdam. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Emily Jackson, and until next week, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com.